0: This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com.
1: This is Meant to be Eaten, the Gastronomica podcast on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host for today, Jose Johnston. This episode is part of a special series in collaboration with Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies. Our fall 2021 issue on global gastropolitics features articles on taste, ingredients, palates, and power from different times and places. For the next several weeks, join hosts from the Gastronomica Editorial Collective as we talk with our authors. My guests for this week are Raul Mata and Padma Panchapakasan. Raul Mata is a researcher at the Institute of Culinary Anthropology and European Ethnology at the University of Göttingen in Germany. He's also a fellow at the Paris Institute for Advanced Study. Padma Panchapakasan is an independent researcher with expertise in business and hospitality management. Raoul and Padma, thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Thank you, Josie. Uh, to begin, can you tell listeners a bit about what you do and where you're based?
2: Uh, Yes, uh, I am a researcher at the Institute of Cultural Anthropology at the University of Göttingen in Germany. Uh, I've been uh, working on food topics for over 10 years now and recently I uh, won a fellowship at the Paris Institute for Advanced Study, so I'm currently based in Paris and uh, I'm I'm here to develop a project on culinary sustainability.
3: Hi everyone, hi Josie, I'm Fatma. Um... A researcher in marketing and uh, I'm currently heading the research at a startup called Inmax Solutions in India, uh, focusing on patent research and content development. I'm currently based in Chennai, a city in the south of
1: India well-known for its uh, warm and humid climate. Great, thanks for that that background and congratulations on the fellowship, Rahul. Can you tell us a little bit about your research on food like what are some common themes and and preoccupations and, and maybe speak to the uh speak to how you came to collaborate
2: well basically what i do is to explore the processes through which uh, different actors load food with purposes other than nutrition i'm uh, interested in food as a cultural and political object more specifically i study food in relation to cultural identities, nationalism, cultural heritage, cultural diplomacy, and more recently, migration. And I've also written a bit about the role of chefs today.
3: And uh, about me, I'm a researcher in the area of marketing. I've extensively researched on service experiences and published articles on restaurants and the quality of service. Though uh, not specifically uh, focusing on food. And many of my research articles also deal with an element of culture in service settings mm-hmm.
1: so you share a common interest in how food is more than just uh, n- more than just nutrients. it involves so many different layers of culture and as and increasingly concerns around sustainability uh yes so. Obviously, today we're here to discuss your recent article in Gastronomica, and your article is entitled Deflated Michelin An Exploration of the Changes and Values in the Culinary Profession and Industry. And that article is in our current issue of Gastronomica 21.3. Can you tell us a bit about what motivated this project and how you came to collaborate? And what drew your interest to the topic of, of Michelin?
3: Uh, yes, so uh, I was researching about uh, restaurant services for one of my other papers uh, in marketing. And I bumped into uh, some newspaper articles, uh, which talk about uh, the Michelin stars and the chefs becoming more and more uh, reluctant to uh, maintain them. And some of them even giving back Michelin stars. So I was curious to dig more about the topic as I had always thought Michelin was a mark of quality, very high quality for restaurants. And I found many articles describing this trend of giving back Michelin star. And this is how how we got our idea for this research. And after reading these newspaper articles, I contacted Raul um, uh, because we were both uh, colleagues uh, at that time in Malaysia. We were working at Taylor's University Lakeside. And we, we knew each other well because Uh, We both had been recruited under the strategic research initiatives of the university and also had attended a conference together in the Philippines. Uh, Raúl was very receptive to the idea and we started developing the research uh, paper together. And that's how it started, actually.
1: That's a very cosmopolitan introduction to this very uh, transnational topic. Thank you for that. Um, I'm just... Wondering, maybe our list, not all of our listeners know about the Michelin Guide. Can you give them a bit of background on, on it? You know, It's been around for a long time. When did it first launch, and, and how has it changed? Sure. Mm-hmm. The first Michelin Guide was compiled in France in
2: 1900 by the Michelin brothers, the founders of Michelin tires. They wanted to create demand for cars, and therefore for the tires they produced because there were not many cars at the time. The first print of the Michelin Guide included maps and popular routes in France, and also instructions on how to repair and change tires. It also included a list of restaurants, uh, hotels, mechanics and gas stations. So restaurants and food only played a part in the Guide, it was not central. The goal of the Guide was to sell tires. The Michelin star rating appeared much later in the mid 1920s, so, yeah, or less 25 years later. Uh, back then, restaurants, uh, all of which were in France, were awarded a single star if they were considered fine dining venues. In 1931, the rating system expanded to become the Michelin three star rating we, we know today.
1: And what's the time period that you decided to focus on?
2: Uh, I can say the time period we focus on the paper is uh, from 2005 onwards because it was that year that the 50 best list, which is the main competitor of the Michelin Guide, was first published. Other judgment devices in gastronomy, for instance, uh, audiovisual materials such as uh, Netflix Chef's Table and other culinary shows, are m- much more recent. So, yeah, it's basically 2005 to now.
1: Right. Um, so can you, tell us that, can you tell us a bit about how you conducted your research? So you looked at the Michelin guide and, it's, and also some um, television content, but maybe just speak a bit more broadly of what kinds of data you, you selected and, and why you selected it.
3: Of course. Sure. Um, in Chile, um, we performed a lot of desk research with a huge amount of uh, newspaper articles, as I had mentioned earlier. And these articles provided reasons why the chefs were criticizing the Michelin Guide and the reasons uh, we found that the reasons were very different. Uh, We also uh, read academic works, uh, for instance, uh, your work on foodies, Sinia's work on food media, and uh, Christelle's work on uh, Michelin Guide, and many other scholarly work related to the sociology of food and culture. We also refer to the writings of Lisa Aben and uh, uh, some other uh, food journalists. Uh, we have also made use of the theoretical framework on judgment devices uh, proposed by French uh, sociologist uh, Lucien Coape, and we explored uh, what we consider the judgment devices, uh, such as mission guide, the 50 best list. Episodes of uh, Netflix series Chef's Table uh, to uh, elaborate on our points. And uh, they actually, we uh, considered using the data from online reviews um, such as TripAdvisor, Yelp, Instagram, etc. But uh, they did not qualify, uh, they did not fit uh, the category of judgment devices in our perspective. Uh, So we didn't use them in our paper,
1: so yeah. Right, so you're really looking at the different judgment devices that identified high status uh, dining options. So can you tell us a bit about the competing list, the 50 list that you've you've, um, mentioned?
2: The 50 best uh, started as a ranking as in music, made by a restaurant magazine, uh, a British uh, publisher. And uh yeah, they, little by little, they become very central to uh, to the industry because it was considered more, let's say, less snob than Michelin, more open because there was no secrecy in the making of this list and the judgment, as there is in the Michelin Guide, where the inspectors are not known by the restaurant owners, so uh, it also, the 50 at List also um, was born to be global and uh, so they they wanted to reach as much people as possible around the world mm, different than Michelin that started in France, was very French oriented and uh, and only recently they became uh, a bit more international, uh, so yeah, you can say that 50 Best leaders, uh, spoke to more people and was seen as less elitist, so people could engage a bit more with restaurants, with the kind of foods that were prepared and the, and the chefs that were make, making this kind of food, which are not a uh, typical French chef and all this. Uh, yeah, it was more open to other to other cultures too.
1: Interesting. So the Michelin Guide is now not the only game in town, and it also is seen perhaps as a bit stuffy, elitist, and Eurocentric. Okay, so your article um, does a, a, a really... Excellent job documenting this trend, where the high status and legitimacy of the Michelin Guide is um, thrown up to debate. And you, as you've mentioned, you've noted these cases where Michelin chefs uh, actually want to give back their stars or ask the the inspectors not to visit their restaurants. And I'm wondering if there are any of those cases that really stuck out to you as significant, if any of those particular chefs or any stories that that um, loomed large in your, in your mind as you considered this phenomenon? Um, we think uh,
2: one of the most significant is the case of French chef Marc Verrat, which ended in a lawsuit he lost. Verrat wanted to force Michelin to demonstrate that an inspector had dined in his restaurant and wanted to know the reasons behind the demotion of his restaurant from three to two stars. But he did not gain the case. It was very publicized in media. Uh, another example that we found particularly interesting was that of Supinya Juntsuta, a woman in her 70s who owns a food stall in Bangkok, a stall uh, which was awarded one star. Um, one might think that the owner of a humble food business would be more than happy to receive one Michelin star. But it turns out that she ended up stressing out and overwhelmed by the volumes of customers who wanted to try food from a Michelin-starred place. So we found it interesting that some chefs considered that they would be better off outside the Michelin system.
1: So even though it's uh, an evaluation system that's based in Europe, there were chefs from various parts of the world that didn't necessarily experience the gift of the Michelin star as a gift they, for, the, for the food stall owner, it could be actually seen as, um, not maybe a curse is too strong a word, but something that, that was unwelcome. Is that, is that fair?
2: Yeah, more like a burden. Yeah, maybe
1: as a burden. A burden.
2: Mm.
3: Because they felt the pressure of maintaining the star.
2: And they, they didn't, and they didn't learn the job under these parameters, under this framework this uh, gastronomic, the French, uh, the French gastronomic framework. So yeah, was maybe less interesting for them.
1: So those two examples are really striking because they're from very different food cultures and parts of the world. And I'm wondering if you noticed any striking similarities or differences as chefs and restaurant owners grappled with the Michelin system. Was it different within France or beyond France or were there global north versus uh, global south country differences? That you saw in the data
3: uh, to be honest we think that outside france and in uh, the global south the industry and the media talk more about the, the 50 best list than about michelin uh, especially true for american latin american countries uh, where michelin doesn't count much and uh, michelin still has that french or european flavor uh, while the The 50 best list is meant to be more international, uh, as Raoul already said. And about the global similarities and differences, um, in Asia, it's uh, been an interesting journey as well. Uh, Since Michelin landed here in 2008, uh, there have been some controversies. Asians do not agree with the Michelin star ratings because they ask how a bunch of foreigners just show up and tell us which is good and bad. So uh, the main concern here is the composition uh, of Muslim inspectors who come to uh, evaluate uh, food. And they are uh, mostly European, and they do not have the uh, uh, person who who understands the local culture and the local chef. Uh, Also, um, the Asian continent as a whole um, has the highest number of Michelin star restaurants, uh, with a grand total of around 800, I mean, to be precise, 828. Um, In the recent times, uh, the Southeast Asian countries are catching up with the Western counterparts. uh, And in India, um, there are uh, almost eight Michelin star restaurants, mostly located in the capital city of Delhi and uh, Mumbai. Yeah, so um, uh, there are controversies, but there are also um, uh, restaurants who really want to be uh, awarded the Michelin star and showcase that uh, as a mark of quality. So maybe the eastern countries are now just following the steps of the western countries, while uh, the, the, the trend of Michelin
1: is varying in the west. So it sounds like the Michelin star system has become more globalized, but its entry into other contexts outside of France isn't always welcome and isn't always uh, smooth or without uh, p- um, political questions being asked.
3: Maybe because of the, the cultural differences.
1: Right. And also the, the background of the inspectors, that seems like an important... Um, bone of contention. If you have uh, inspectors evaluating your food culture that aren't indigenous to the food, food culture, one can imagine how that is a politically controversial point. Definitely. So we're going to take a short break, and we'll be back in just a
0: moment. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. So
1: many eaters want to know where they can find good food, but food scholars also like to ask who has the power to define what is good food? So this is Meant to be Eaten with Jose Johnston talking with Raul Mata and Padma Panchapakasan about their article, Deflated Michelin, which is available in a recent issue of Gastronomica, issue 21.3. So Raul and Padma are experts on this topic of food experts so I would like to hear your thoughts on this question. Who has the power to define what is good food and who do you think are the key stakeholders in this social process of defining good food and how has that balance of stakeholders changed over time? I'm thinking here of the chefs, the restaurant owners, Um, the food writers, but also increasingly the online food reviewers, uh, the foodies taking pictures and posting them on on Instagram. How has this conversation about good food uh, changed? And who do you see as particularly powerful um, actors? Actually, I think
2: all of them are powerful actors to a certain extent, but probably food writers and chefs. Are those who now have more power to define what food good food is? Instagrammers, online food reviewers, mm, can also have an opinion, but I think that the definition of good is broader. When when this is addressed by food writers and chefs, because this is something from a more holistic perspective, not only about taste of uh, how the food looks like on the screen. I think that food writers and chefs uh, are more and more informed now. And I'm thinking, thinking in particular about the expansion of the curricula in culinary schools and the opening of gastronomy programmes in universities, which do not only focus on cooking, but also on food grinding and other topics related to food environments. And also thinking on the rise of food studies in academia. So the question here is to see if what starches and famous food writers define as good food is good for many people or is good only for a happy few. Mm,
1: That's a really nice way of putting it. how do you think that conversation has uh shifted with the rise of more food storytelling in media? So a lot of food writing isn't just about saying eat here this is good but also this is the story of this food or this is the story of this particular um chef. Can you speak to the the, the importance of narrative or telling a story with food?
2: Mm, uh, food media uh, uh, storytelling what well, depends uh, there is it has changed a lot. Uh, for instance, tickets ago, to me, food media was basically showing a cook who is following recipes. I remember my mother, back in Peru, watching cooking shows and copying recipes in small notebooks, even though she never made them at home because she hated them. She still hates cooking.
0: <laughs> I'm, yeah,
2: really. I may be wrong, but to, to me, it was basically that food media. Food critics, on the other hand, their job was to judge palatability and compliance to the French gastronomic canon. Uh, Today things are very different. Um, Food writers and chefs have a word to say about the functioning of the food system and its consequences on people and and the environment. What they say can be accurate or not. But in any case, they are very keen in taking the stage and showing themselves. Mm. Now, some of you folks at the of Bolivar Gastronomica, have made a great job in addressing these change in roles in food media and writing.
1: I think one of those changes in roles involves how food can be... Um, f- food is always more than just food, but now food can also be about not just culture, but also about sustainability, about politics. And your article describes how a lot of famous chefs have developed public personas that showcase their culinary style, but also advocate for different values, values like diversity or innovation or sustainability. I'm just wondering, what do you make of this trend? And do you think it reflects a relative democratization or opening up of the food scene?
2: That's a good question. It's difficult to say because in current times when people have much more possibilities to put a name on something or whatever, because every single thing is now in the phone. To talk of democratization can be a bit tricky. But yes, I think that diversity, innovation, sustainability are cross-sectoral and cross-class values, meaning that they speak to a wider audience than that of the food scene. Uh, It's also a growing sense of urgency, too. We know that things need to change, and the way we relate to food is one of these things. I'm not sure if the food scene is now more democratic, but there are crucial concerns, particularly environmental concerns, that are pushing people to do things otherwise, which is absolutely necessary.
1: Yeah, I would I would agree with that. I think that the it doesn't necessarily mean, uh, democratization doesn't necessarily mean a complete opening up, but there are new issues being put on the table that weren't put on the table before, and I think sustainability is an important one. Another one that comes up, I think, less often are issues around labor and inequality. And this is an interesting phenomenon where your article documents uh, the decline of Michelin, a rise of a more, a desire of a more casual, less stuffy restaurant experience. So I'm wondering, how do you, what do you make of that paradox? And do you think these more casual, less stuffy restaurants are necessarily more accessible to eaters?
2: Mm, I think it all depends on the range of prices they apply. Simple can be expensive and unaffordable to many. I think, for instance, of Fabio Parasecoli and Mateus' allow us a concept of a Global Brooklyn, which applies perfectly to restaurants and cafes. It's basically pure hipsterization. These are places that look simple, cool, but are not necessarily affordable. That's a that's a nice way of putting it.
1: I'm wondering, did you come across any surprises while while doing this research? As I uh, as I
3: mentioned earlier, uh, this research it sort of started as a surprise when I came across the newspaper article talking about uh, the chef's resistance to mission Guide. Uh, that said, while working on the research, uh, uh, me and Rao we. Witness the evolution of the restaurant industry towards the, uh, as a as whole, uh, evolving towards democratization and um, also mediatization of food. Uh, so food evaluation and criticism, uh, all those things which earlier uh, rested in the hands of experts, so-called experts, uh, they became distributed uh, among the common people. Social media also gave power and visibility to uh, foodies uh, who evaluated and recommended food to their friends and family and uh, their followers um, on social media. Meanwhile, also um, eating out uh, in Asia has grown exponentially in the last decade. And Asian re- restaurants uh, have caught up there. Uh, European counterparts, like as I mentioned, uh, they want to be uh, they want to be seen visible, uh, become visible globally, and they are also becoming more open, creative, uh, sophisticated uh, in trying out, experimenting, exploring uh, new ways of
1: uh, cooking, cuisine, and catering to more international segments. Right, so you you've kind of jumped ahead. to my my next question was about how things are changing and where you see this this trend of changing valuations going. Um, so so thanks for those comments on on the topic of looking ahead. I'm wondering if you could speak more specifically to where do you think the Michelin system is going? Do you think they're going? To, how are they going to react? Or I know you can, uh, scholars are often pretty. Uh, Poorly suited to predicting the future, but where do you think the Michelin system um, is is headed?
2: Um, Michelin is becoming greener. Now they have, a, they do not have um, stars for green restaurants, but they have a green macaron, which is another symbol they use. Uh, so yeah, and this reflects a a general trend. For instance, yesterday I read in the newspapers that the food that will be served at the COP26, which is the big climate summit starting next week in Glasgow, will be mostly plant-based and that 80% of the food will be from Scotland, so means local. I think this exemplifies quite well the changing valuation in the food domain in general.
1: Local and meatless, that is a nice uh, summary of some of the key concerns um, in the contemporary foodscape. So I'm wondering if you could uh, turn the analytic lens just towards yourself and say, how does this research change where you like to eat or, or has it? And what are some of the, your favorite places um, to dine out or th- or to, how does it shape what you cook at home, if it
2: has at all? As for my favorite places to eat, I prefer simple eateries. Uh, bistro-like venues or places that serve tapas-style food. As a consumer, I think I have become more aware about sustainability issues, for sure. But to be honest, sustainability does not play yet uh, a big role in eating decisions, not really. <laughs>
3: uh, for me, um, I think in India currently, we are not even thinking about sustainability. But uh, I would say that uh, when I was in Europe, uh, Portugal, um, most of the restaurants I used to frequent were uh, uh, very much uh, using the local uh, cheese, local ingredients uh, for their uh, f- uh, cuisine. And uh, uh, one of the the restaurants I would remember, um, uh, it's it's very simple, but they also follow a very simple concept. It's called akele lugar, and um, they they wouldn't have any standard menu, but are very creative uh, they came up they used to come up with a customized menu for a group of people or an individual uh, they would just ask us the food that we want to avoid and they would just come up with the recipes and every time it would be new they do not have a standard menu so i think these kind of restaurants definitely wouldn't have qualified for a michelin even though uh, they are very creative and open and uh, uh, there was also, uh, there were many, many coffee shops and restaurants, small uh, ones in, uh, in the main downtown uh, in Lisbon, uh, which served amazing pastries and desserts and wine that complemented the main course. So, in fact, many times I wouldn't have the main course, I would just have uh, the desserts and the pastries there. Uh, so, uh, these were because they were very traditional and simple to eat. Uh, um, yeah, so... Um, they, the, I can say, I, can, I could see that the uh, Portuguese love to preserve uh, the local culture, the, their tradition, their the cuisine. And many of them used to say that they, they procured fresh local cheese. Uh, so now, looking back, when I become more aware of these sustainability issues, I think they were very, very sus- sustainable.
1: Thinking about Portuguese pastry and, and, and cheeses is making me pretty hungry, actually. So I'm wondering if you could, uh, if thinking about those experiences allow you to make some suggestions for our listeners, are there things that you would like them to think about when they eat out, or questions that you would like them to ponder, or just recommendations?
0: Mm-hmm. I think it-
2: well, I would like to remind the listeners that for this good to think, meaning that we might embrace food as a medium to relate with the world we live in. It's basically, that. Yeah.
1: yeah, it's nicely put. What about you, Padma? Uh,
3: maybe they can uh, they can think about uh, obviously the the conditions, living conditions of uh, the people who serve and people who produce the food, the farmers and. Uh, uh, also about the people who work in the restaurants. Uh, I think it's important to be more empathetical, uh, and also about eating local whenever possible. Once in a while, it's okay to indulge, I
1: guess. So, yeah, that's uh, thanks for bringing in those issues around all of the hard work that that it takes to bring food to our table. It's um, sometimes hard to balance that out with the the other message of allowing yourself uh, a little bit of indulgence and pleasure, but those I think those are two important um, takeaways uh, from our conversation today. I'm wondering uh, if you want to tell us a little bit about what you're working on next. Where has this research brought you?
3: Hmm. Uh,
2: Now my interests in food are moving towards environmental concerns and uh, new ways of living together with food as a medium. I'm trying to put two concepts, uh, conviviality and foodscapes, together. It's still work in progress. Work in progress, though, so I cannot tell much more right now.
1: That sounds fascinating. I like I like the idea of conviviality and foodscapes um, joining up.
2: Let's see how it goes.
1: Yeah,
3: <laughs> that sounds interesting to me as well, Raul, uh, because I work with servicescapes and service settings uh, for my research mostly. Um, So I can think of, uh, often I I can think of uh, uh, some kind of uh, uh, food research which will connect food and culture because uh, I mostly work uh, in service-oriented research, not directly food. So uh, my next uh, project I'm working on is more related to service innovation and uh, co-creation, like how different uh, people, different actors, they, they co-create uh, service experiences, even though we uh, always tend to look at that from the consumer's perspective in marketing, and it's always about selling. So uh,
1: this is uh, my con- my focus uh, in my current uh, next research. Right. So although you don't have a, a, f- a formal research plan for, uh, that you're going to work on together, I can see some clear overlaps and areas where you can share ideas on the idea of service experiences and how that can shape conviviality. And and something I think a lot of us think about as we have been eating at home instead of eating out um, in in public dining places with the the COVID lockdowns. Hope it changes soon. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I've never yearned for public space uh, more in my life, I think. I'm wondering, is there anything else you'd like to share with us before we sign off?
2: As for me, mm, not really, we'll only, I don't know, thank you, Heritage Radio Network, and also Astronica's board for the opportunity to feature our research and a nice conversation. It was very enjoyable.
3: Thanks a lot, Joseph, for your uh, moderation and your questions. Uh, it made us actually think and uh, we now realize that we have enjoyed and learned so much from this paper and also um, uh, for, the, for your time. And this is my, my first, uh, uh, one of my first formal podcasts uh, despite being in the area of marketing. So thanks to Gastronomica and the editors uh, for this opportunity and also appreciate Josie for her time
1: and the conversation.
2: I have to do this on Sunday.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the benefit of doing it on Sunday is you can set up the podcast to be followed up with maybe Portuguese uh, pastries or or pancakes or something else <laughs> delicious. I'm pretty I'm pretty hungry now. Um, so thanks for inspiring that. Thank you for joining us and thank you for writing this article. I'll definitely not think about uh, Michelin stars the same way again after reading it. It's a really important um, contribution to our our collective knowledge in, the, in food scholarship about legitimacy um, symbols and about the different um, legitimation processes that sanction some food as good and other food as um, less valuable. So, so thank you for that contribution. Listeners can read the full article in Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies, volume 21.3. For more details, visit gastronomica.org. Join us next week as we talk to Benjamin Schrager on the topic of risk, regulation, and raw chicken in Japan. Sounds a little bit less appetizing, but equally fascinating. That's all for now. Um, Thanks for listening.